Welcome to the sermon podcast of First Church of Christ, where our goal is to lead generations into a life-changing, ever-growing relationship with Jesus Christ. We pray that you are encouraged and challenged by today's message. Greetings, church. I just got to keep you on your toes. You were anticipating a good morning. Uh, good morning to those of you joining us online. You get to say it back to me. Good morning. Hey, really glad that you guys are here I um, hope you are glad that you're here, too. Some of you, like, because it's spring break, you're like, I wish I was in Florida. I get it. It's fine. It's all good. It's like 50 degrees here. We'll, we'll take it. We're in Indiana. Amen? Right now, 50 degrees feels like 80. Amen. So in, 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 this, time, in, in, the, in this time, it was common to stick to your own kind. In fact, it was kind of seen as the right and holy thing to do, is to stick to your own kind. When it came to worship, uh, other people could worship, but if they were uh, didn't look like you, then they couldn't worship with you. They could worship, but they couldn't worship where you worship. Travel was kind of interesting, too, because uh, depending on where you were and where you wanted to go, uh, you might end up avoiding some neighborhoods on the way there and go the long way for the sake of not coming into contact with certain groups of people. See, the, the world I'm describing uh, may sound familiar, but it's the first century world. That is what it was like to be Jewish in the first century. It was common for uh, Jewish folks to look at Samaritans and Gentiles and, and want nothing to do with them uh, because they believed and, and they saw that uh, God had blessed Abraham and they were from the lineage of Abraham and, and uh, everyone else, the Gentiles, the Samaritans, they were less than them. We call it ethnocentrism is a buzzword today where uh, because of your ethnicity and your religious uh, standpoint would be an additional thing that was involved in the Jewish world. World. In, the, in the first century, uh, you saw yourself as better or, or uh, more supreme than other people. Today, we're turning to our attention to the conversation about race. Now, I know that uh, when we talk about this subject today, there are a variety of views that you, may, you might have when it comes to this conversation. Some of you may uh, just think like, well, why, why are we talking about this? Why? Others of you may uh, look at this conversation and say, okay, yes, we need to talk about this. We need to see more progress and racial reconciliation in our day. And others of you may find yourself kind of somewhere in between. Uh, but I, I, what I want to, to accomplish today is to show you that this is an important topic. In fact, it's, it's so important that uh, this was actually something that the first century church was dealing with, and therefore there's something in Scripture to say to our day and time of what we're dealing with. Because it was common in the first century, like I said, the, the, the picture I just painted for you earlier was the picture of a first century Jewish experience. That there would be times, there would be, there would be people you would want to avoid. If you want, if you're on the south side of Israel and you want to go to the north side and go up to Galilee, then there's, in between there is Samaria and, and you wouldn't want to go to Samaria. Why? Because of, they're, they're Samaritans. They're, they're, they're not, uh, ethnically pure in the Jewish way. Uh, so you would avoid them, you go around them, and uh, Jesus comes onto the scene. 
uh, as a promise being fulfilled from, from Abraham that God told Abraham back in Genesis, back in the Old Testament. He said, hey, I'm going to bless you, bless you into a, into a family and into a nation. And in your offspring, through your offspring, there will be someone who will bless the entire world, the whole entire nations, all nations, all ethnos is the word uh, in Greek. Uh, all ethnicities of the world will be blessed through your offspring, who we understand now to be Jesus. So Jesus comes onto the scene in the midst of a first century context where Jewish people were the minority in their own in their own context because the the Romans were occupying them and oppressing them. And uh, he comes in and he does his ministry. He lives a perfect life. He goes to the cross and on the cross he pays for all of our sins, past, present, and future. He rises from the grave and defeats sin and death. And then he, uh, right before he ascends to the throne room in heaven, he tells his disciples this. He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem in Judea, for the Jewish person, this, there's no problem with that. Jerusalem, Judea, okay, we're, we're rolling. Yeah, I will be your witness right in my home space. But then he said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. Uh-oh. Jesus was calling them to go to a place and go to a people that they despised in many ways. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And what the disciples would soon find out is that the Holy Spirit would guide them to speak the truth, to preach the good news of the gospel to Gentiles, which a Gentile was a way of Jew, Jewish people describing anyone who is not Jewish. So if you're not Jewish, uh, thank God that he saw it fit to bring his message of the gospel and the good news to Gentiles too. And... That is where we kind of see it in Scripture. So that, that's what they do. The disciples start to, to spread the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout the, the whole known world. And as he does that, um, God does that through people. Paul ends up planting churches in predominantly Gentile context. So here's what we start to see in the first century church. Jewish people and Gentile people are brought together through the blood of Jesus into a new people called the church, a family of God, the house of God, and now they're supposed to become unified together, blood-bought by the blood of Jesus, and uh, th- they start to experience something that none of us are aware of, none of us ever experience today. They start to experience conflict. Because they're completely different. They, they, they grew up differently. They have different ways of thinking and, and they're starting to bring together. And, and in this, we see in the New Testament it being addressed over and over again because this was a point of contention. How do I live as a Jewish person with Gentiles as my brothers and sisters in Christ? How do I as a Gentile person live with these, uh, kind of awkward Jewish people as my brothers and sisters in Christ. What does it look like to be a people when we're nothing alike, but we're brought together unified under Jesus? That was the question. That was the difficulty. And in the book of Ephesians, uh, the church in Ephesus, where we're going to be, Ephesians chapter 2, so if you have a Bible, you can turn there. Uh, In Ephesians, we're going to be coming to a spot in Ephesians chapter 2, right after uh, Paul tells them uh, some some verses that many of you who grew up in church or been around church for a little bit, you would be familiar with. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not a product of your works, so that no one may boast, but is 
It is a gift of God. That you have been saved by grace through faith. It's not according to your works. It's not according to what you've accomplished or not accomplished. It's according to what God has done. And he's given you grace. And right after that is a passage of scripture that says a lot to our moment today. It says a lot to their moment in their day. And oftentimes we don't see it. So Ephesians chapter 2 verse 11. It's right here in the text. Let's see. Verse 11. So then... Remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. Jewish people will look at Gentiles, you're uncircumcised. In other words, you, you, you're, not, you're not on our level. Verse 12, at that time you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenant of promise. Without hope and without God in the world. Paul's not pulling any punches for the Gentile. That was their, that was their reality. Verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace who made both groups. Watch this. It's so powerful. For he is our peace who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in, what is that word, church? Resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near, both to Jew and to Gentile. Verse 18, for through him we have both access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. Amen, church, because if you ain't Jewish, that's good news for you built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. So there was this wall of hostility, Paul points to. This wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. And what, what Jesus came to do was to break down that dividing wall of hostility. Because it needed to be broken down. Because in order for, for God to do exactly what he was wanting to do, and that is to make disciples of all ethnos, all nations on the earth, then that dividing wall of hostility needed to be broken down. And now, because of Jesus and the dividing wall of hostility being brought down, Jewish people and Gentiles, which is just every other person group other than Jewish people, would be brought together in the church in one body. The two would become one into the house of God, into the family of God. Isn't that a beautiful picture? It's a beautiful picture that all people made in the image of God, regardless of their ethnicity, they have hope that they can come to Jesus and through Jesus, they can come to the Father and they can experience eternal life. That is good, good news. But it's not just for eternity. See, what we see this is that God was trying to create something new, something unique right here and now. Not for somebody when, 
but right here and now. And so then the first century church starts to, to do life together. They start to, to figure out what it looks like to, to live among each other. And they have conflict. Read the book of Acts. They have conflict. Read the New Testament letters. They have conflict. But they're starting to make it work. They're starting to learn what it's like to live together under the banner of Jesus. See, Ephesians chapter 2 in the first century church, it gives us... It gives us insight into our own situation today. It's not the same. Jew and Gentile is not the same as what, uh, what, what we understand our situation here to be. But it does give us insight into what's going on. Now, we, we don't have the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile right now, but we do have a dividing wall of hostility, a legacy of hostility that stretches back before our country was even founded. So we're going to talk about this because I think as followers of Jesus, we need not be afraid of history. We need not be afraid of what has happened. And we need to also pay attention to what the history has been because we understand the the profound effects that our pasts have on our present, that generations have on generations. Uh, so let me just, let's just break it down. Let's talk about the legacy of hostility in our country that stretches back before it was even the United States of America. Back in 1619, uh, a Dutch trading ship had uh, had went in and they had stolen, they had taken from a Portuguese slave trading ship, which was called, by the way, St. John the Baptist. The ship was. See, the Portuguese uh, ship had gone to Africa, kidnapped uh, African people, and had uh, been bringing them over to uh Central South America, and they were they were robbed by Dutch people, and the Dutch people took those African people and brought them to the shores of Virginia in 1619, not because they were asked to, but because they saw an economic opportunity, and they 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 said, "Hey, would you like some free labor?" And and not that the colonies were necessarily looking for it in this moment, but then what that what that started was a a experience and a culture that started to adopt this idea of slavery. What began in the British colonies of America continued into uh, independence from Britain and into the birth of a new nation that our nation and our founding documents uh, says this. Our founding documents say that these truths we hold to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by the Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And yet, for 240 plus years, people owned people. The very people, many of the people who signed that document, that they said that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that every person is endowed by the Creator with certain unalienable rights, among them life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, at the same time, owned people. (laughs) Humans owned humans. They beat them, they raped them, they worked them to death, they bought and sold them, they had them as their own property. Church please agree that that is utterly disgusting. Horrible. That human beings, many who confess the name of Christ as their Lord and Savior, 
owned humans. But then, 1863, Emancipation Proclamation comes. And then a couple of years later, the 13th Amendment comes. And then slavery is done. So why are we still talking about it? Well, I think you would all agree that just simply making something illegal does not change the narratives that are inside of someone's heart that would make them believe that a person who doesn't look like them is simply three-fifths of a human. It doesn't just get erased just because the law is put there. But in fact, that people who saw black and brown people as three-fifths of humans, they, they, that those sinful narratives, they invade human hearts and they can go on and on and on. By the turn of the 20th century, every state in the South had mandated racial segregation laws we know as Jim Crow laws. In 1896, the Supreme Court had these Jim Crow laws put before them and they determined that they are constitutional, they are legal because they reflected customs and traditions and promoted peace and good order. During this time, it was common for black Americans to be lynched at the hands of white Americans, which rarely ever resulted in justice against the perpetrators. Now, let's consider real quick the current wealth gap in America. Uh, The average black household has only one-tenth of the wealth of the average white household. Why is that? Now, I'm sure it's a complicated thing, and and probably none of us are necessarily qualified to be able to look at all the intricacies of the issues that are involved there, but I do know a big one, and that is, uh, how do you build wealth? One of the ways you build wealth is by home ownership. That's a big way. Well, in the 1930s through the 1950s, the federal government enacted policies to encourage white families to buy homes and discourage black families to buy homes. In 1934, the Federal Housing Administration created a risk rating system to decide which neighborhoods were, were uh, of uh, safe investments for federal-backed mortgages to be able to be given. Uh, and, and what they determined was that black neighborhood, neighborhoods were deemed too risky. And that's what, we also, that's what we know now as redlining. That's the term, redlining. To go on, in the time after World War II, uh, a couple things were at work. So uh, if you served in World War II as a veteran, the the country wanted to take care of you as you came back because uh, everyone was very thankful for their service, right? And so they issued what's called the GI Bill. And so what the, the agreement was is that as a veteran, you get to ex- get to uh, contain these G- the GI Bill um, incentives. And basically what it would be is a couple parts. One is a subsidized mortgage by the federal government to go and buy land and buy a home, a home because we know that uh, home ownership is a, is a great pathway to the middle class. And the other one was education, subsidized education. Here's the thing. Many and most black American World War II veterans were denied these benefits. So they didn't get them. So black people couldn't live in white neighborhoods and they couldn't receive federally insured mortgages in black neighborhoods. Here's why. In the same period during after post-World War II, uh, a bunch of housing was being built in the suburbs of our country. And as that was happening, all these new subdivisions, all these new housings, uh, all of them were deemed, deeded as white only. And so if you're a realtor, uh, it was actually against realtor practices. You could you lose your real estate license if you sold a house to a non-white family in a white neighborhood. You could lose it up until the 1950s. So after the war, returning veterans who were white were able to build home equity, grow wealth for retirement, inheritance, and college 
education. Eventually, factories and other blue-collar uh, employers moved to the suburbs, and the poverty rate of those who were in the inner city increased. And with that, drug use increased. And along with that, crime increased. Which, by the way, when those patterns start to happen, when poverty increases, then drug use increases, then crime rate increases. That's common for every ethnicity across the board when that starts to happen. And so then, then the war on drugs came, mandatory minimum sentencing and the disparity between possession and the dealing of crack cocaine versus powder cocaine. Let me explain. Uh, it was common in, in uh, more impoverished and oftentimes black neighborhoods that uh, the, the drug of choice was crack cocaine. And in many more uh, middle class and upper middle class uh, families and, and neighborhoods, uh, powdered cocaine was the drug of choice. Now, these are they're the same drug. They're just different forms. Um, but the thing is, the, the policies on sentencing uh, were different. Man- mandatory minimum sentencing was higher for possession of crack cocaine than it was for powdered cocaine. Why is that? I don't know. But that is what has happened. That is what happened. And so uh, over the course of time, federal grants began incentivizing drug-related arrests, mostly related to possession of drugs, which is against the law, and the prison populations exploded in the 1990s. In fact, our prison population went from 350,000 in the year 1980 to 2.3 million by 2005. Violent crime, crime rates during that time did not increase. The increase came from sentencing practices. In 2006, 1 in 100 white men were behind bars in the same year. 1 in 14 black men were behind bars, even though drug use among, among the two groups was nearly identical. There's a lot more that can be said uh, about our legacy of hostility. Um, but understand, notice what I did not point to at, at all in this mostly is individual uh, signs and individual acts of racism or bias or prejudice. Um, I've pointed to more systemic things that are more common among uh, affecting multiple uh, groups of people. Because here's the thing, y'all. We, we, as followers of Jesus, as Christ followers who read the Bible, we all understand that uh, all have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned, right? Okay, so if if... Human beings are inherent sinners, and we create systems to operate within. Then wouldn't it not be much of a jump if our systems and structures that we create for society have some broken pieces to it? Not that not that hard of a jump, but oftentimes that's that's debated. But how can we, as followers of Jesus, not believe that the systems and structures that human beings made? Don't contain sin, don't contain bias, don't contain pride, prejudice. We just looked at it. See, th- I'm not even talking really about individual uh, signs of racism because we've come a long way in that. Uh, overt signs of racism is usually, in many cases, in most cases, uh, rejected and criticized and denounced. And that's good news. Because... It was a time not too long in the past where white pointy hats was a sign that was very common. But I think what gets to the heart of the issue when it comes to the conversation on race is is this statement, and I I just want to propose it to you, and I think it just gives us a little bit of an opening to be able to see the true nature of our hearts, whatever that is. 
The real question of Christian discipleship is not, can I be your brother in Christ, but can I be your brother-in-law? The real question of Christian discipleship is not, can I be your brother in Christ, but can I be your brother-in-law? Who, who is it that your kids can't marry? Who is it that they can't associate with merely because of what they look like? Who do you feel uneasy around merely because of their appearance? These kinds of questions help us to get to the heart of our racial situation. And, and by the way, church, uh, one of the, the, the horrendous, all this stuff has been, uh, is, is painful to even go through. Uh, to be able to talk about. But then you, you also understand that throughout this history, in our country, um, in many ways and in many cases, the church has not only standed idly by while these things went on, but in many situations we've participated in it. That people who confess Christ also saw themselves, if they're white, saw themselves as greater than another group, merely because of what they look like. And that is not at all what we see in Scripture. That is not at all what we see that God is calling us to. See, the first century church and in Scripture, what we see is a is a extreme care for the poor, an extreme uh, sign of racial reconciliation, because we see uh, church after church who brings Jew and Gentile together. So we see the first century church leading the way on what that can look like in our day and time too. A care for the poor, racial reconciliation, and then also a sanctity of life, a view of the sanctity of life, and also a biblical sexual ethic. All four of those things are what the church prioritized, among other things, in their lives. Care for the poor, racial reconciliation, sanctity of life from womb to tomb, and biblical sexual ethic that says that sex is for a man and a woman in the life-uniting covenant of marriage. That is how the church saw the world to to be best. That is what God has called us to. But point me to the, the political party that holds up all four at the same time. See, church, I don't want to give you the Jesus of the elephant. I don't want to give you the Jesus of the donkey. I merely want to give you the Jesus of the lion and the lamb. That's it. Point me to one political party that at the same time can handle up a prioritization of the care for the poor, racial reconciliation, sanctity of life, and biblical sexual ethic. You won't find one. So, therefore, we must be the church that transcends all of our political categories of our day. And what we see in Scripture is that Jesus is the reason why we have hope. He's the reason for the fact that we have the answer to our problems. He's the one who came in and he saw the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. And he came not just to save you from your sins, not just to give you a get out of hell free card, but so that you would live a life that is after the kingdom of God, that is following King Jesus here and now today, that justice would come down, that love would be set forth and that reconciliation would be given as a ministry of the church, that we would be the people that when people look at us, they see that we are the light of the world, the salt of the earth, and that when they see our good deeds, they will glorify our Father in heaven. That is what we're called to be. 
Because Jesus has made it possible for not only reconciliation with God, but with our neighbor as well. When Jesus was asked, hey, who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? You know who he pointed to, to this Jewish man? He pointed him to a Samaritan. The person he had disdain for. He pointed him to a person who was nothing like him. But he was called to love him. See, the, the, God's mission is for reconciliation with him, with each other, and this beautiful picture of the family of God coming together. That no matter what your background, no matter what your, uh, no, no matter what your ethnicity is, no matter what nation you're from, no matter what language you speak, you can be brought into the family of God and be counted as a brother or sister in Christ. That is the beautiful picture of the church. See, but we, we also know that it was difficult in the first century. It wasn't just like rainbows and sunshines. It was hard. See, Peter, um, he was, because Jesus told him, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, Peter started to obey that. He went out and, and was uh, preaching to the Gentiles. And as he was with the Gentiles, um, as he's eating with them, which was a sign of friendship, which is what you would never do, have, have you not followed Jesus and Jesus hasn't told you to do, as a good Jewish boy, you would not go and eat with some uh, Samaritans or Gentiles. You just wouldn't do it. But Peter's doing that. But then his Jewish friends come. And he starts to back away from the Gentiles because he doesn't want to see uh, be seen associating with them because he knows what his friends might think. And when Paul saw that, Peter was a Paul, posed Peter to his face. He tells us about this in Galatians. That, that Paul spoke to Peter and opposed him and said, you are wrong in this. And it's in the same book that, that Paul makes the declaration that is, there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. In the church, there is no more room for racism. There is no more room for classism. There is no more, there's no room for sexism. There's no room for any of that because we are all brought together under the banner of Jesus. And so Paul opposes Peter because it was not normal. They had to learn how to live together. Um, so what do we do from here? I want to point you to five Christ-centered actions that we as followers of Jesus can take. But let me remind us of the, the statement, the question that can get to the heart of the issue for each of us personally. The real question of Christian discipleship is not, can I be your brother in Christ, but can I be your brother in law, that gives us a new frame. Wrestle with that. Number one, what can we do? Remember history. Remember history. We don't have to be afraid of history. We, we can talk about where we've fallen, what we've done, because we can learn from it. We must remember history. And let me just say, like some of you might be interpreting all, like me just recounting the historical nature of our, of our legacy of hostility, um, as, oh, Brandon, you don't like America. You don't like America. No, that's not what I'm saying, y'all. I'm proud to be an American, but here's what I know about families. If a family has an issue and no one talks about it, then guess what gets worse? The issue. If you want your country to be better, we should come to terms with where we've been and where we're trying to go. 
And so we should remember history. Uh, Barna, they do research on, on uh, the church and, and uh, the culture, and this is what they, they found. Those supposedly most equipped for reconciliation do not see the need for it. Do we see the need for it? Or are we like, oh, well, what, what is everyone complaining about? We're, we're past that. We need to do the, not just one, remember history, but we need to do the second thing. Listen to others. Listen to others. Let's not act as if our own experiences represent the experiences of every single human being who's ever lived on the face of the earth. Just because you've not done any racist things or overtly racist things does not mean that it doesn't exist. Too often in our day, we, uh, we, even though we have access to so much information, we've, we've kind of adopted that, well, if I have never seen it, it's not true. Really? You're one of 7.2 billion people on this earth? And because you haven't seen something like this happen, you think it's not an issue? We need to listen to the people who are saying, hey, this has been my experience. And listen, not to defend. Like, what are you defending? We don't have to get all offended about this. We can listen. We can sit and hear someone's experience. Understand where they've come from and what they've experienced, what they've dealt with. And we can, and we can learn something. Number three. Examine yourself. Examine yourself. Uh, Rich Velotis, he's a pastor in Queens, New York City. He told a story um, of a couple years ago he was in a library, and he was focused on his work and uh, likely preparing for a sermon. And uh, he, he all of a sudden looked to his left, and, and to his left he saw uh, a black man who seemed to be looking for something. He was like, oh, I wonder what he's looking for. And then a few seconds later, it went from his kind of like observation to his interpretation. And he's like, is he trying to steal something? And then about five, ten seconds later, he realized that the man was merely looking for a place to charge his phone. Because in that moment, he had a shower of shame upon himself. Because merely because of what someone looked like, he brought his observation to an interpretation, and then it went to a judgment. And, and we, we must be on guard and, and watch and observe our own selves on, on what we interpret. What we, do, do, we, do we know this person? Or because of what they look like, are we far more cautious around them? Uh, we've got to pay attention to those things because those things point to the biases, the prejudices that live deep inside of our hearts. Number four, love radically. There shouldn't be nothing, shouldn't be anything new for us as Christians, right? We're called to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And that is what we uh, are called to do. And when we do it, church, it's a beautiful thing. And many of us do that. And it's a beautiful thing when the church loves radically. We can hold to truth and we can also love radically. And number five, pray for greater reconciliation. Pray for greater reconciliation. We can remember history. We can listen to others. We can examine ourselves and we can love radically, but we must bring this uh, conversation. We must bring these struggles in our day, in our country to our Lord and pray that he would do a new work because church, we have the answer. He's given it to us. 
Church, Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, it says this, paints a really beautiful picture. After this, I looked and there was a vast multitude of from every nation, tribe, people, and language. After this, I looked and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. If you have a problem with what people look like, if you struggle with with, uh, being around people who are not like you, then understand you're going to have a hard time in heaven because it's going to be a beautiful picture. And here's the thing, y'all. The church is 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 been given by God to the world. See, here's the thing. A hurting world needs a wound-healing church. A hurting world needs a wound-healing church. And what God is going to what we're going to see in heaven, God wants us to bring that down. His will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right? That's what he wants. So we can start to see this. And, and yes, we've made progress. We've made, we've seen it. But may we still see that Jesus wants so much more. Still today, the most segregated time of the week, 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning. And I get it. We live in a largely homogenous community. So what can we do? Well, we can remember history. We can listen to others. We can examine ourselves. We can love radically and we can pray for greater reconciliation. A hurting world needs a wound healing church. That's who we are, church. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for giving us um, direction giving us a a foundation in which we can go forth and to love people radically, uh, that we can go forth and we can bring, uh, we can, we can start to see that your kingdom is, is invading this earth just as it is in heaven, that we can be the, the conduits, the, the, the tools to be able to bring your will to earth as it is in heaven. God, may we be those kinds of people that we can uh, love people no matter what they look like, no matter uh, what their background is, no matter what their uh, belief system is, whatever it is that, that would divide us between other people. Would we be the kinds of people who are like the first century church who turned the Roman world on its head by merely following our King? God, please lead us. Please hear us as we sing to you. We are grateful that we have the opportunity to worship you freely. May we, uh, may we be, be open to what you're going to lead us to. Holy Spirit, have your way in us. That is what we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast by First Church of Christ in Bluffton, Indiana. For more information, visit FCCFamily.com.